This is Kevin. And this is Ron. And this episode of Your Valuable Home is brought to you by Provia. Provia, a faith-based company that makes entry doors, storm doors, patio doors, vinyl and wood-clad vinyl windows, vinyl siding, manufactured stone, and metal roofing, all of incomparable quality. To everyone in our audience across 44 states, countries overseas, thank you for listening week after week and for making Your Valuable Home among the top 10% of all podcasts. We have two big announcements to make. Aha, the first one. Beginning the first Friday in January 2023 and continuing for five Fridays into February 2023, we'll serve up the podcast and YouTube series. That's YouTube as well. It's called The Coolest Neighborhoods in America. Enduring, historically significant architectural style was the determining factor in the neighborhoods we chose to feature. First up, multiple neighborhoods in Philadelphia and surrounding areas that feature to this day prime examples of homes in the mid century modern architectural genre. That podcast and YouTube release Friday, January 6th. Then on Friday, January 13th, we'll interview two longtime residents of Medford Lakes, a resort community of log homes turned year-round Mecca on a series of lakes in the protected Pinelands of New Jersey. And the coolest neighborhoods of America will continue through the first week in February with podcasts and accompanying YouTube videos. This is a first for us. Anybody who's interested in architectural styles and just finding about these communities where the common denominator is a real sense of pride about the community. Then in early February, we'll celebrate our 100th podcast. Can you believe that, Kevin? 100 podcasts. 100 podcasts. I've actually watched you get older doing this project. <laughs> and the beginning of our ninth year in broadcasting and podcasting with tons of ideas for our listeners from Kevin and Ron and frequent contributors to Your Valuable Home. Ideas to help our listeners make affordable home improvements as well as lots of ideas to enhance the value of their communities. Our 100th podcast celebration begins in early February. All about you the listeners of Your Valuable Home. Welcome to Your Valuable Home, the weekly podcast for listeners who believe that residential real estate is the way to build wealth. Hi, I'm Kevin Kennedy, a working contractor and host of Your Valuable Home. Your Valuable Home is for homeowners and investors alike who want to acquire and improve real estate based upon educated decisions. And I'm Ron Milk, Your Valuable Home producer and co-host. Our weekly one-hour podcast is not about doing it yourself. It's about hiring the right contractor to do the right job at the right price. And it's not about flipping. It's about buying and holding to build wealth. Homeowners and investors strive to create wealth and financial freedom with real estate and avoid costly home improvement mistakes. Your valuable home is for you. The Project Replay made redoing our kitchen and bath trouble-free. Your horror stories have kept us from hiring the wrong contractors. The college segments have taught us how to keep toxins out of our home, what to look for in replacement windows, how to borrow sensibly against home equity, and more. College teaches investors like me how to freshen up my rentals without spending a fortune. Their suggestions are great for ROI. It's time for Your Valuable Home. All right, Kev, another show and another replay. What do we got in the replay? This is somebody who's finishing their job. We are done. Yeah, Yeah, we are done. We had them on, uh, her and her husband on several times, uh, walking through the process of how things are going. And uh, I I think one of the things that I'd like to talk about, because I've officially seen it, was the table that we had custom built that she designed, and it looks great. So we have Courtney coming on talking about her kitchen, bathroom, and windows. We are done, and it's all put together, and we ask her what... She likes about everything. So, Courtney, uh, let's yeah. talk about it. What can I say other than that? I would say that the transformation exceeded anything I could have imagined it would have been. When it all finally came together, it was worth the wait. Kevin talked about that table. The table that extends out into our, what was the old family room that didn't get any use given our new family room in the addition. It has created a use for that space that is just beyond what I could have imagined. It is a table we will eat at every day. It is a table where my kids sit and do their homework. It is a table where I will have parties and have people, Mm. you know, gathered around. And the fact that it's right next to the wet bar now and has a fireplace right next to it makes it all the more better. And the kitchen itself is just so functional. It feels like such a bigger space, even though Kevin will tell you, we didn't really expand the footprint at all. The only thing we did, Kevin, right, was we closed off about a foot of the opening. So we got that extended cabinet run. And one of the things we did was we moved our island down in the kitchen away from the entry point where you walk into the room from our mudroom. And I think just having that additional two feet of space really helped open up the kitchen and just makes the flow so much better. 
which the woman that Kevin had us work with on our design ensured us would be the case. It looked a little weird when we just had the island there and we second guessed ourselves, but she was right. It's just really all fantastic. The bathroom upstairs is great. The kids love it. We had a custom closet put in and that was great because now we have full functionality and the use of that linen closet for kind of the whole house's extra stuff. And the windows... We had those done as well. We had five new windows put in the front, including a big bay window in our dining room. And it all looks great. We couldn't be happier with the work that Kevin and Dave did and with the project itself and how it turned out. Yeah, usually they always say Dave first. (laughs) <laughs> the work that Dave and Kevin did. <laughs> well, that is fair, Kevin. I could put Dave first for sure. I'm not saying anything. I'm not going to completely agree He's with you. He's a more memorable character <laughs> with that hair. He does. Yeah. He does. Yeah. I, somebody actually told me just recently, uh, one of the ones who's actually on the promo of the show every day, she said, you know, you and Dave are like the dysfunctional property brothers. <laughs> She said, you guys, because we've been together so long. That's a good description, actually. So they always said that, uh, you know, Dave's the fun and dysfunctional between (laughs) us. So, yeah, that's uh, that's Dave. Yeah, that's Dave. He gets along so well. And I tell you, Dave, he just wants to work. That's it. And when I said we're going to be there seven days a week, we were there to get it done. And that's what we were there for. But with Dave being there, it just made it a lot easier. But he always gets friendly with all the customers. Yeah, yeah, he's he's in PR. (laughs) <laughs> well, I will say there was a certain comfort in the regularity of knowing that Dave was going to be at my house every day at 7 a.m. It screwed up my circadian rhythms in terms of sleeping, but it provided me <laughs> with a level of assurance that if I had an issue or if I was concerned about something, Dave was going to be there and I could ask him and you know he could come to me with any questions, although he didn't really ever have any questions. They were all driven by my own questions. <laughs> I, I've got a question for you. It's in your situation a little unusual because you actually became part of the home improvement crew, in essence, right? Describe the feeling you've got now. Is it self-satisfaction that you played part in it and uh, it came out the way you envisioned it? I didn't consider myself in that way until you said it, but quite honestly, I think that's a big part of it. I love it so much, number one, because it looks fantastic, but it is so functional. And that's what we wanted when we designed it. That was the goal. The goal was to create a huge gathering and multi-use space Mm -hmm. for that table. And that's really what it turned out to be. And so I think part of the satisfaction is the hand that I had in designing it. But I think part of the other satisfaction that we're feeling with the kitchen overall is that I forget, you know, how much in terms of the snafu that we had with our quartz. But ultimately, you know, when our quartz was ready to go in, we had to go start from scratch and pick a whole new quartz color. And we didn't have a designer as part of this process. My husband and I chose everything together. And so that was a little stressful for us because we had to pick a new quartz color. And then we hoped it was going to match our backsplash. And I think just seeing the the final look and how the colors all went together so well, we're kind of really proud of ourselves. We feel like we did a good job. I love it. That's what I was striving for. It's got to be a different feeling for you than it is for the average homeowner who isn't that participatory. Yeah, I think so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah said- we were very personally invested in it. And Kevin will tell you that because I yeah. probably drove him a little bit more nuts than the average homeowner, <laughs> too. I called her the email and text queen. I always got emails just to, <laughs> and she said she very well micromanages everything because I'm very good with the communication. Hey, this is what the schedule is. We're going to hold to the schedule. And I just want to make sure homeowners know. I'm going to agree. Communication is definitely a foundation for anybody doing. Oh, anything Absolutely. today. And if you did have options, like we, when you brought up about the table, Dave's looking at the table and he's looking at the plans. Now the plans, it was a lot shorter that was set on the plans. So Dave's like, listen, I, I think we can get this bigger. So we called Kathy, our designer. What was the maximum we can shoot for? Because we wanted to extend it because Dave thought this, that it could be better for the homeowner if we can extend the side of the table to make it larger. And mm-hmm. Dave just is envisioning something that since we're there working, we can go to the homeowner, we can go to the designer and see if this works anyway. So that we increase the table size to what we can max wide. And mm-hmm. that maximum depth that we got in there made a huge difference. But it's nice that if a homeowner can work with a contractor and just deal with them every day and communicate well, I think it's better for anybody that's going to oh, be getting work absolutely. done. absolutely. No question about it. Yeah. It's great to hear that you are so happy with the end result. We are. We're absolutely thrilled. And, you know, look, you have bumps and throughout the process, which, you know, none of which were due to Kevin and Dave. I will say, you know, one of the things that was really great during the whole thing and it's just the level of service. I know Kevin talks about it a lot. What I would tell you is it's true. I mean, I myself am in a service-oriented business. And so for me and for my clients, right, responsiveness is paramount. 
And so that was the one thing I felt like I always had with this project with Kevin and Dave. I mean, if something went right, if something went, you know, a little bit differently than we all anticipated, the comfort was in knowing that Kevin was on top of it and he was going to be responsive and I was going to know what was going on quickly and promptly. So that was really just great. Ron, to give you an example, so yesterday we were just getting the appliances installed and just had a quick question. So basically what I always said, because we were big movies people, we like the 80s movies, and I said, we're sending the wolf over from Pulp Fiction. He takes care of all the problems. So once I said, hey, look, the wolf's coming over, and I know you gave me the thumbs up, you're, you were good with that, because once Dave gets there, he can do anything anyway. But I'm sure it made you as a comfort level feel much better. Yes, that's true. But uh, yeah, that was just, it, it's a nice thing just dealing with homeowners that you can just communicate with and have a great time. I mean, that's the whole thing. If I, I tell people, listen, if you're going to be happy with the contract, and don't feel right about it from the beginning is probably going to go wrong because things can happen like it happened but how good can that contractor adjust to make it better for the homeowner i mean bottom line it's it's for the homeowner it's not for you it's for the homeowner to make sure they get done done right and i even remember when i said everything's going to work out once the granite gets taken care of we'll come in right after and now that we're at that point the stress is gone and you're enjoying your kitchen you're probably going to forget about it at this point when that happens and and you've got to make a correction like on a spot like that and order a new piece how long does it take is it really throw them off uh it, it was i mean it was about two weeks it, it was during the holiday also oh which yeah, really just yeah. put a little wrench into it. but other, yeah. other than that it was maybe according to about two weeks time delayed from the the quartz company to come out and then reinstall it yeah i think it ended up being three weeks because of the holiday correct because we were supposed to have it in on the 19th in december and we didn't get it till the 11th of january wow. but okay. once it came in on the 11th of january i mean back when we found all this out on the 20 20- second of december i mean kevin already had everybody lined up on the 22nd with you know it's going on the 11th and then you're here the 12th and you're here the 13th and then we're done so it all it worked was great. out it all worked yeah out. it worked yep. out okay. yeah i just need the date so i can adjust my schedule to and with me well i'd say me dave doing so much of the work because it really wasn't like i said a lot there it wasn't so much it was a lot of moving parts and once the moving parts for me are done then we can just kind of fill in the gaps mm-hmm. but i just needed those parts to be in place which is when's the granite going or the quartz going right. because I don't do that. So the company that did it, I need to work off of that schedule. So just give me that schedule and I'll work extremely hard to make sure that we stay onto that schedule. Yeah, so in your business, logistics has to be a big part of what you do. For me, it is, yeah. yeah absolutely. I'm not yeah. the one that's going to sit there and say, oh, well, listen, I, in the next couple of weeks, I'll send somebody out to finish the painting. I'll send somebody out to, no, it's get it done. Homeowner wants to be done. So if I have to work a little bit harder, I'm going to do it. And that's why we stay so busy because we got to make sure the homeowner's taken care of. That's my whole thing. If, if you're a contractor and you want to be in this business, make sure the homeowner's first. Okay. Don't go back and just start doing jobs and running around. Take care of the homeowner. Courtney, you really want to get into listening to this for two reasons. Number one, you got your signature on this project. Number two, the feature today is the last in our coolest neighborhoods in America. And we're doing Frank Lloyd Wright structures in Buffalo, New York that are absolutely drop dead gorgeous. They are gorgeous. So you want to hear this whole show. That's cool. I'll look forward to seeing it. And I'll be sure to send Kevin some of my photos, which I'm sure will not compare at all to the Frank Lloyd Wright. But I feel pretty good about them. I don't know. I don't know. You and you and, you and Frank Lloyd Wright are I'm, it's neck and neck. Neck and neck. There you go. There we go. Yeah, it is a great design. Everything really worked out color-wise. I, believe me, I would have I, Dave would have probably said something also, but we all love the colors. Everything you did, because it's your home. It's your first choice. And even though it's the, you always think that, hey, you had to change the color, it's still the right choice because you still made it and you're happy with it. That's mm-hmm. the key. Right. So bottom line, for our listeners, just to make sure that you know, when you're doing something, just make sure you're happy with everything you do. Absolutely. You have to live with this kitchen for a long time. Yeah, absolutely. All right, well, enjoy your kitchen. And uh, we're looking forward to the party and golfing together sometime when it gets warm. Sounds great. Thanks, guys. Have I a good one. Congratulations. Hey, Kev, we got John Gallagher back to talk about Horror Story Continued. Continuing. Continued. Well, we talked about it over a couple weeks with the replay. Uh, His daughter came on, then he came on talking about some of the issues that they found. It just doesn't stop. So the continuation of it. But, I mean, there is a light at the end of the tunnel, it looks and like. This was, a, this was a, let's just reframe it a little bit. It's a, a whole house makeover, essentially, right? Yep. A twin house? It was a twin house that they hired somebody to do a job who was not even below quality. It was so poor that it basically had to be redone. Some of the things that I, because I, I actually physically, because it was local enough that I can go out and see it, were so bad that I just couldn't believe somebody in the business would be saying, hey, listen, I'm a contractor, I can do this. Take your money, rip you off, and still feel good about it, not giving the money back. So we had John on working with him to try to get him whole again. And I believe we're working in the right direction, but it's just so many plethora of mistakes the guy made. You uncover one thing, you find another thing, right? It it really was. Yeah, it really was. And it's uh, the guys he brought in. So John's on the air. John, hey, thanks for doing this and coming on and talking a little bit more about the issue and finding out where we 
are at with this project now. Are you frustrated at this point, I'm presuming? Yeah, I mean, but I, I would say we are in a much better spot two, three weeks in, I should say. The framers that you brought in, that you uh, introduced us to, we did literally reframe the entire house. So it's all been reframed and that was over two holidays as well. So it's been reframed. A lot of the electrical's been redone because the where the framing was, we had to take that out. We filled up an entire dumpster with all the framing and all the wood that we took out. So it was just a complete waste. Money, yeah. Um, to see all that. I think the one thing that kind of stood out for me, kind of being a novice in this whole thing, is that not understanding the codes and then having you know the building inspector come in and tell us what would make code and what needed to change, as well as one of your framers who really understood all the codes. I think that was probably the most eye-opening thing to me, is just to understand what was wrong and how it didn't need code. So in other words, it all had to come out. So you're saying um, a novice. I, I was thinking, was it you or was it the contractor because he didn't know the codes either (laughs) he didn't know the codes either correct he didn't know the codes either and you know and and it was simple things that hey this is frame wrong because the door opening has to be a certain way to make code so the framing would have to come out in order to make it so that we could have a door that would meet code and that would just carry into the wall that was leading up to the doorway because if the wall would have stayed it would the door wouldn't be wide enough for code it was all these things that just kind of kept compounding and then of course then the electrician gets upset because his wiring's been removed and we're going, yeah, but we had to change it in order to make code. And, you know, obviously we're willing to pay you to rewire it, but it just, it's just a compound of frustration. Yeah. Usually if you have like something like that and you have to go back through steps, you think you're at step five, but you got to go from five, four, three, two to one to zero. And you're wasting a lot of money. You're wasting a lot of time annoying everybody. It's just like, who needs this? You know? Yeah. And, and I think the other part of it too, that was frustrating for me is that, for instance, we have new windows going in upstairs. And leading into that, there was where the second floor bathrooms to go. The exterior wall had, you know, I I guess it almost looked like a paneling that might have been painted over the years. It's warped. It's showing water damage. Kevin saw it. You know, we said, hey, rip this out. Let's take a look at the framing behind it. Tore it out. Obviously, the framing behind it was rotted because the windows had been leaking for years. We ended up reframing all that. Well, again, I'm going, how is it that wouldn't have been a priority? You know, sure. We all can sit there and look at it and go, that wall needs to be removed. There's clearly an issue here with the water damage. And it wasn't even a priority. It wasn't even a wall that was being addressed in the beginning of the project. So we ended up tearing that out, you know, framing, having it framed out for the new windows that are to go in. But again, to me, it was, you know, kind of going back to when I talked to you guys before, there was a deck being built. And yet the house internally was a problem. That's the other part of it that's frustrating. It's just the not seeing aesthetically what needed to change, knowing, hey, there's probably mold, there's probably rot behind this wall. We should tear this out. This should be a priority. And it was not even a priority. I think the way he started to do the deck, because the way it was written in the contract was if he got part of the deck done, he can get more money out of you. Yeah, no, I I don't disagree. I think so. Um, Shakedown. And it's it's horrible for people because they put that leap of faith that this contractor is doing the right job. Now he's collected so much more money than the work that was performed. Now at this point, where homeowners were saying, all right, you get to that point, but everything he's done was wrong in the beginning. So now the homeowner, as you said, you got to rip everything out and redo it, do it correctly. And it's nice at least he got a permit, but my foreman was down there just looking at things. The permit just said for deck only. It's a deck application only. So I still, I'm going to look into that for you when, when we talk to the attorney and, and find an avenue, because I still like to know it, it's not hitting where I like it to. It was too much money. He applied for just the deck and it says it right on there. So I want to go back in further to see if the, well, your new guy, actually, I know he re-got the permit for everything, but just to make sure that I was done from the beginning or did he scam me that he took all that money and just put a deck down and didn't do the inside? Yeah. And I, I agree with you. I think when we get to that phase, we, that's something we need to look into for sure. But I, I would say this, I mean, the good news is we're, we've had rough carpentry inspection done last Friday. We had the electrical inspection done. This Friday, we're getting HVAC and plumbing done and insulation starts Tuesday next week. So, so we're getting there. Yeah, we're, moving, we're starting to move along. Um, the staircase has been um, ordered. That's two to three weeks out. Drywall. So we're moving forward. But realistically, I think we're probably, what, still April? Probably at this point because there's so yeah. many moving parts you have to what, put back together. Total yeah. fix for a total fix? That's just the inside. Oh, boy. The hardest part for us where we had to begin because if 
we had to rip so much out to start over to get him back to whole because we had to get to the inspections. We can't go anywhere without getting the inspections done done correctly. Mm -hmm. If you don't do that from the beginning, all that money that he put out has been wasted and has to redo it again. And that's what people don't understand when they're entering a contract. If you don't ask questions from the beginning, this is where you're going to be into it. I know we talked about it. It's not to beat a dead horse, but it just alleviates some of the problems if you just ask the right questions. John, I sent Ron the the contract. It was the last show that we did, and, and you love reading. And you, I said it put me to sleep. <laughs> and it, it, was, it was so much non-specific stuff in there. It's like, oh, my God, what is this guy trying to say, you know? And was he just trying to smoke somebody, you know? I, I didn't even get to that part. I was The first thing I was looking at was, what's he doing? Hey, I'll put a floor in. What floor? <laughs> hey, I'm, I'm doing you know, this bathroom. Well, what are you doing in the bathroom? Hey, I'm putting windows that's, in. That's what I mean by non-specific, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, there was nothing there. And for homeowners, they, they should be asking so many questions on what are you putting in? Like even the deck, it was it was just everything's vague, so you don't yeah. know what the allowances and or what they're putting right, in. Right. So they can go, oh, did you want something more? They can always do the gotcha, and then to ask for all the money up front because he's well into payment into this for getting nothing done. So there, these are questions that we we tell homeowners, and when they they contact me and they say, Kevin, we love the show, but we didn't know what you said. Uh, well, what do you want me to do? So basically, what I tell people at this point is what John's going through, having to rip everything out, redo it back to code, and then get the inspections and go through all this aggravation and money that they're going to spend from the beginning by asking the right questions from the beginning. You minimize these problems. And I know you and I talked a couple of times on like how to get the jobs done quickly is because we're well organized. I don't, I don't know that you would. I mean, that's a good rule of thumb, Kev, but I don't know if you would because if, if, the, if a guy is... If he doesn't know what he's doing, that's one thing, okay? And maybe you can catch him up front. But if he's really trying to scam you, and you ask a lot of questions up front, he's going to find uh, a way to get around those answers, too, if he's trying to scam you, right? True. You know what I'm saying? Yep. So it's it's a good preventative measure, but I don't know if it'd be foolproof if the guy is really trying to scam you. Right, minimize. That's why I keep saying yeah. it's going to minimize yeah. a lot of the problems because you just never know. I mean, mm-hmm. look, contractors, I, I, I get it. You're all in business to make money, but you still got to take care of the homeowner. And if you don't know what you're doing, why are you in this business? And that's what I can't understand. It's like, he had absolutely no clue what to do. I look, and I know he stayed at a Holiday Inn. And he felt great about himself, but he didn't do his job and didn't even do it to code. And even some of the stuff he was building, like, why would you even do something like this? That deck we talked about in the last show, it extended on the ledger board. Now, that ledger board was attached to a rotted part of the house. And there's no support at that corner. So yeah. I want to know how. So you could have a big party on that deck and people go right down. Pretty much what's going to happen. So all this additional work that's got to be done, it's going to be more difficult because the, the framing of the deck is built already. And then we talked, I, I don't think we talked about the doors. We're, we're putting new Provia sliders in. And then these sliding, I don't know what he did, but he put a board at the bottom to raise it up. So you have a, a pressure treated board. So you're going to finish flooring. And about eight inches prior to this door is a pressure treated board. And then the door was installed. And then on top of that, the door is installed and it's leaking. So what are you going to do? Have a finished brand new kitchen and finished floor and have a pressure treated board sitting on top of there that you're going to be maybe, exposed maybe to? Maybe he thought it looked good. <laughs> I, I didn't even know. I, I just couldn't figure out how he did it. And really, at the point where I, when I was just looking at the windows because I didn't have the kitchen layout, uh, when Dave called me, I never forget this date. He said, "Listen, you might want to uh, re-get that window because I just had to order it, but I, the people I work with allowed me to reorder the window. The window was going to be below the countertop, so Dave had to frame that because he, he put a brand new window in. But if you have a countertop, the window's going to be below the countertop. Well, that, you can't open it, so you don't even have to wash it. Right? <laughs> That's forward thinking. <laughs> so if you don't know what you're doing, stay out of the business. These are people's money, hard-earned money that you're taking, and all this aggravation they got to go through. People don't need this. So let's do it right. Listen to the show. And, John, we're going to keep uh, calling you back on the updates on where you are and just if maybe you can walk our homeowners through and our listeners through the process and what you've went through so we can avoid them having it happen to them would be great. Yeah, absolutely. John, good luck with this. Isn't that a horror story? It's a <laughs> nightmare. It is. We're getting there. I'm sure we'll be talking before it's finished, but I'm hoping April we're done. Perfect. Thanks, and guys. Listen, stick with us, everyone, because this is the last feature segment where we're doing the coolest neighborhoods in America, and this one's on Frank Lloyd Wright structures and beautiful, beautiful buildings in Buffalo, New York, where there's the greatest collection of Frank Lloyd Wright designed houses. Most people don't know that. So stick with us. It's going to be very interesting. All right, we'll be back after we take a quick break. Kev, is it hard for clients planning large exterior projects to visualize how the colors and textures work together? It used to be, especially when they mix products from different manufacturers. Provia's new website and broad selection of exterior products make my job easy. Clients' faces light up as they choose all the products needed to give their home's exterior a now look with Provia's product line and their amazing new website. We use their visualizer right from my laptop. 
Hey, the site is amazing. Provia makes color selection a breeze. The website has eight suggested exterior color schemes that can be applied to Provia products, or customers can choose shades from any palette to suit their own tastes. The Design Center tab must be a great tool for you in visualizing how all Provia products work in harmony based on window and door configuration, siding, stone, and metal roofing color and style. It's brilliant. You can see how Provia products work together on a sample home or a photo of a client's own home. Then you save the work with the My Portfolio tab. The site even lets me take exterior measurements. The new Provia.com and an expansive line of exterior products deliver on Provia's mission, which is to serve by caring for details in ways others won't. For updating home exteriors, our listeners should go to Provia.com slash YVH first and visualize the possibilities. You know, Ron, as we wrap up the five-part series, Coolest Neighborhoods in America with Buffalo, what goes into a podcast, let alone this series? It's a lot of time. It's a lot of research for both info for the podcast and the YouTube video. People ask me about the information about the coolest neighborhoods in America, and I just say, Ron, the research, the time, the knowledge, the determination to do this that Ron put into this. So, Ron, kudos to you to make it perfect for our listeners to have it and see a great show. So I appreciate you saying that. I really do. It it's, was, been, it's been a labor of love. It really has. It's just, <laughs> you got to love it or you wouldn't be doing it. That right? is true. Yeah, okay. that is true. So let's get uh, on with the featured segment here and uh, continue with the coolest neighborhoods in America. I'll tell you, we are about to embark on what I consider a fascinating journey to a legendary Frank Lloyd Wright's residential and other architectural creations in Buffalo, New York, on the shores of Lake Erie. Buffalo is basically right on the border with Canada. According to AD, or Architectural Digest, around the turn of the 20th century, Buffalo was the country's eighth most populated city. In 1901, Buffalo had more millionaires per capita than any other city in America. And the rest, as they say, is history, including architectural history at its very, very best. So we're fortunate that they have Jesse Fisher, the newly appointed director of the Frank Lloyd Wright Created Martin House, here to guide us on the journey, the fifth and final in our podcast and YouTube video series, The Coolest Neighborhoods in America. Jesse, first of all, congratulations on your new appointment. Thank you so much. It's really exciting to be here. Yeah, well, it's exciting to have you here, too. Jesse, can you give us an overview of some of the neighborhoods in Buffalo that serve as a showcase for Frank Lloyd Wright's prairie genre of architecture? Like so much of the city of Buffalo itself, these neighborhoods were shaped by the vision of Frederick Law Olmsted, who's the famed landscape designer. Yep. In the late 1860s, Olmsted was originally brought to Buffalo to build one park, but he ended up designing an entire park system, the first one he designed in the country, what he referred to as a city within a park. Two of Wright's homes here in Buffalo, the Martin House and the Davidson House, are located within blocks of Olmsted's Delaware Park, which is the crowning jewel of the park system, the one he was originally brought here to build. On streets that are shaped by the curving expanse of its green space and the right designed Heath House is on Soldier Circle, which is one of a series of landscape circles Olmsted used to connect his system of parkways, which were meant to run between each of the parks that he designed, sort of a green necklace that ran throughout the whole hmm. city. And several of Wright's properties are located right on those parks and parkways. Olmsted did all that designing in Buffalo before he did Central Park in New York? No, Central Park is widely considered his first park, but the parkway system that he designed here in Buffalo, which he would subsequently go on to do in many cities, Seattle, uh -huh. other places, he really moved away from just building one park and went to this sort of system of parkways. And the first time he did that was here in Buffalo. Buffalo is a beautiful city, and it has all of these really diverse and interesting and exciting neighborhoods. So, yeah, folks haven't been to Buffalo. I definitely encourage them to come and visit. These neighborhoods that we're talking about, the ones that Wright would have been designing in at the turn of the last century, are known for their tree-lined streets and their landscape front lawns. And at the time that Wright first came to Buffalo, these neighborhoods would have been made up primarily of Victorian and Queen Anne-style homes, most of which you can still see today. It's a very well-preserved city. And I think Wright's experimental prairie-style houses would have been quite a dramatic and unusual departure from their neighbors. What are the defining characteristics for our audience, the defining characteristic of Wright's prairie architecture, which he invented, right? He did, absolutely. He pioneered this style, and then it goes on to be called the Prairie School because there were others who studied under Wright and you know became quite a popular style for a long time. It really celebrates kind of the long, low landscape of the Midwest, which is where Wright grew up and where he really developed his craft. The style has strong horizontality to it. It sort of prefers to spread out over its site rather than kind of build up. He often included low-pitched roofs, large central chimneys, and cantilevered eaves. Prairie-style design and detailing is often seen as incorporating the natural world, and Wright really liked to blur the lines between the interior and the exterior spaces. You can really see that when you're here at the Martin House. 
in some cases, he would even be involved in actually planning the landscape around the home to make sure you had that sense of sort of the interior and the exterior as one space. And this is especially true at the Martin House where he was really given a lot of freedom in this design and the landscape is also um, a right design. And three years ago, uh, we actually uh, finished restoring the original garden plan at the Martin House. And so if, you, if you've been to the Martin House but you haven't been here recently, it's really worth it to come and see in the blooming season between May and October and you really get a sense of uh, you know, of what he designed for the exterior of this site, not just the house itself. Okay, and th- I found this story uh, really interesting, and it's a belief in mine that anybody who is, and I consider architects artists too, they're, they're, they're creators, the ones that really succeed, and you can go through the years with the artists of uh, in Europe, the Impressionist movement, have a, a, a benefactor, a godfather, a patron, that pushes them along. So what brought Frank Lloyd Wright from his Midwest roots to Buffalo, New York? Well, it was exactly that. It was one man. It was Darwin D. Martin um, who was here in Buffalo. And um, at that uh, point, he was a senior executive at a company here in Buffalo called the Larkin Soap Factory, which was a really groundbreaking uh, Buffalo business. It kind of revolutionized, thanks in large part to Mr. Martin, the mail order business in the United States. Mm. So this was a really rapidly growing business. They had a lot of factories and um, and their administrative offices were kind of spread out all over. So John Larkin, who's the owner, wanted to build a new headquarters building that would be worthy of his growing company, and he tasked Darwin Martin with finding that architect. Now, Mr. Larkin originally suggested Louis Sullivan for the job, um, probably because his Prudential building, which is um, widely considered the first modern American skyscraper, was built here in Buffalo in 1896. So Mr. Larkin would have been you know, familiar with this mm-hmm. very cool building that had just gone up in Buffalo. But Darwin Martin's brother, William Martin, lived in uh, Oak Park, Illinois, right near Frank Lloyd Wright. And he suggested that Darwin Martin come out and meet Frank Lloyd Wright, and he did. And the rest, as they say, really is history. The two hit it off immediately. Darren Martin really saw um, uh, Frank Lloyd Wright as a groundbreaking artist. Um, So he was really interested in bringing him to Buffalo. Um, And at the same time, he was also interested in building his own family estate. So before they dove into that bigger uh, commercial project, which would be Frank Lloyd Wright's first major commercial project on his own, um, Darren Martin asked him to uh, start building his family estate. So he first commissioned Wright to build a home for his sister and her husband, um, and then uh, subsequently his own home. And those uh, projects were so well received that he did go on to win the commission for the Larkin Administration Building, uh, which started in 1904, and it would be his first commercial commission and also um, one of his first uh, commissions going towards the East Coast, not just staying, you know, in the Chicago, Wisconsin area. Well, the this is and this house is spectacular, Kevin. It's fifteen thousand yeah. square feet, and and it's a house and then some. Jesse, can you describe yeah. the residence and the then some? Sure. So the Martin House uh, itself is a three-story family house. And essentially, um, Darren Martin really became a patron of Frank Lloyd Wright, as you say, Frank Lloyd Wright, the artist. So um, Frank Lloyd Wright ended up with almost really unlimited funds and a very free hand in the design. And he really got to explore those architectural principles and those design elements that really would go on to be so key to creating that whole prairie style. So then extending from the main house is a pergola, Um, which is an open-air walkway, and it connects the home to this stunning conservatory, which features a full-size replica of the Winged Victory of Samokai statue. Mm -hmm. The conservatory um, was actually the Wrights, who are very interested in their garden and in gardening, had asked for a greenhouse. (laughs) And rather than build a simple greenhouse, of course, Frank Lloyd Wright built them this beautiful conservatory. Um, and then he also designed a carriage house, which is also interconnected to the whole system. Um, and it was one of the first in the area. It was specifically designed to um, to house horses, but also automobiles um, were kept in the same building. Um, all three of these uh, connecting structures were demolished in the 1960s, but have subsequently been meticulously reconstructed um, as part of the ongoing restoration efforts. 
Then the estate also includes two other right-designed houses, the Barton House, which was the first right-designed building built in Buffalo, which is the house that um, Darren Martin commissioned for his sister and his brother-in-law. Mm, okay. And then gardening was so important to the Martins that um, they also had right-designed a gardener's cottage, which is located on the western side of the estate. So that was added in 1909 and really does highlight the importance of the landscape to the Martins. And taken all together, Wright actually referred to this collection of six buildings as a domestic symphony, and we agree. Oh, I, I would so agree 120% with that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think it's a beautiful way to describe the site, and if you come and see it, you'll you'll really see, you know, you'll see it for yourself. Um, and then in addition to the Wright design buildings on the estate, um, there's a, a rather spectacular visitor center that was built a few years ago. It's called the Great Batch Pavilion, and it was designed by Toshiko Mori, who's um, a a really renowned contemporary uh, architect. Um, There's a beautiful Victorian home on the estate that we use as our administrative offices, and then there's a carriage house that used to be on a neighboring property that now serves as a cafe for the property. So all in all, the whole estate encompasses about an acre and a half, and there's a lot to see and do while you're here. You imagine that, Kev. I mean, Kevin's a, he's a contractor. He works in house all the time. He's got a 15,000 square foot house, and then some on an <laughs> acre and a half. I mean, that's really, that's really a feat. Right? Yeah, definitely a lot. I always like the windows uh, in this house, the way they're, they're really designed. Just a lot of detail into the windows. Jesse, didn't didn't he also design the furnishings for Morton House? Wasn't that, his, wasn't that a thing with him, designing furnishings to the complete package? Yes. So um, he designed nearly all of the furniture um, and also fixtures and things in this house. So, And what he didn't design, he chose. So from the light fixtures to the very first barrel chair ever designed to the dining room table, um, he even chose the art on the walls. He chose them from a collection of Japanese prints that he had acquired while traveling abroad. Um, and then, as you just mentioned, the house is home to an astonishing collection of art glass. So in just the Martin house alone, there are nine unique patterns of art glass, which is more than he created for any other residential project in his career. And then each of the other spaces that we just talked about, the pergola, the carriage house, the gardener's cottage, the Barton house, they also have their own unique patterns of art glass. So literally, you can stand in any space in this in this estate and and see a different view, a different angle, all through these windows, which are all designed to be completely unique to the space um, that they're in. So all in all, the estate has over 450 pieces of art glass in it. And like I said, these are many, many different designs and patterns. It's really worth seeing. Amazing. Aren't some of the original furnishings still there? Yeah, we actually have quite a bit of it. So originally Wright designed about 55 pieces of furniture as part of the commission. And today in our collection, what we have on view, which um, we use a sort of period of significance of right around 1907. Um, And so what we have um, that's generally on view to the public is uh, 35 pieces of original Frank Lloyd Wright design pieces for the Martin House. We have another 24 of the original prints that were selected by Wright for the Martins. Mm-hmm. Um, we have 76 uh, sort of original replica and reproduction Martin House furnishings. So that can include um, original furniture. It can include some of the decorative objects that are in the house, prints. Um, it actually doesn't include the art glass or his encyclopedia volumes. Darwin Martin um, was an avid reader and um, Frank Lloyd Wright created any number of bookcases and, and other things for him to store his really important collection of, of books. And then beyond the Wright designed um, uh, pieces, we also have just hundreds of objects in the collection, which includes furniture, built-in cabinetry, the art glass, um, additional works of art that were designed by Frank Lloyd Wright for the Martins, and then the family's own personal belongings. So it's a, it's a pretty stunning collection. The whole thing is like a museum, right? Yes. Everything yeah. about it. Everything about it is worth seeing. So yeah. can, can you describe in more detail the, the neighborhood where the Martin House is then and now? Sure. So um, the neighborhood probably looks very similar uh, now to when it did um, when when Wright was uh, designing this house. It is the neighborhood itself is listed on the National Register, mm-hmm. um, and it is a really well-preserved um, neighborhood here in Buffalo. 
I said earlier, it it sits right by um, the Olmstead Design Delaware Park, and because of that, all the streets are sort of curved in this beautiful way. Um, so you have these really, you know, lush lawns and beautiful street trees, and then a lot of Victorian Queen Anne and arts and crafts style homes. And then because we're located so close to the park, just down the street in Delaware Park is the Buffalo Zoo, and then the park connects this parkside neighborhood to some of Buffalo's other major cultural attractions, Buffalo AKG Museum, the Buffalo History Museum, and the Richardson Olmsted Complex on the other side of the park, which is an old state psychiatric hospital that was actually designed by H.H. Richardson and is currently in the process of being adapted as a hotel, apartments, and other contemporary uses. So if you love historic architecture and you love beautiful neighborhoods, you definitely want to put Buffalo on your list of places to visit. Yeah, it's something I never realized before because I'm, I'm a fan of uh, Frank Lloyd Wright. I've been to, have you been to Falling Waters, Jesse? Oh yeah. Yeah, it's I mean when you when you come Kevin, when you come upon a Frank Lloyd Wright designed building, it just takes your breath away. It, it does. really does. Yeah. I mean, Falling Waters does that when I saw these photographs here cuz I never knew this much about Buffalo and Frank Lloyd Wright. It takes your breath away. It's unbelievable. It's quite, you know, it should be an honor for you just to uh, you know, to sort of be the 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 custodian of this whole whole thing, this historic um, you know, piece of history. Um yeah, we really think of ourselves here as stewards, oh. so this is something that belongs to everyone and Absolutely. hopefully for all time. So, yeah, I do feel very honored to be here, and I know the whole the whole staff and the whole team does. So, you know, one of my favorite things about the site is that there's no fence around it. So the neighborhood uses the you know, uses it almost as a pocket park. So just looking out my window right now, there's people walking their dogs past, uh, you know, and, and people use this. Space and it really is a part of the community, and you know we just really want to make sure that everybody feels welcomed here. Well, after Wright created Martin House, that was in 1904. He designed other re- uh, residences in a prairie style in, in 05 and 08 for two of Dolan Martin's uh, fellow executives in the Larkin Company, right? Um, yes. Have those structures? Those structures have survived as well, haven't they? Or have they? Yeah, they have. Um, so. Uh, the Heath House, which is on Soldier's Circle, which is in the Elmwood Village uh, neighborhood in the city of Buffalo, and um, uh, and the house on Tillinghast Place, which is just um, the Walter Davidson House, which is just a few blocks from um, uh, from the Martin House, not too far away at all, and also close to Delaware Park. And both have survived. Both are private residences, so you can't you know take tours of them. Um, but they've been very well cared for over the years. And they're both local landmarks, so, you know, they should survive into the future without any, you know, major alterations or demolitions or anything like that. Okay. After Darwin Martin and his wife passed, Martin House was, it was largely abandoned and partially demolished, and it stayed in limbo until, what was it, 1992. What happened then? Yeah, so after Darwin Martin's death in 1935, the family was just really unable to maintain the property, and they really abandoned it fully in 1937. Uh, Mrs. Martin was able to sell the Barton House and the Gardener's Cottage to private owners before walking away from the estate. So those two structures were pretty well cared for. Um, But for 17 years, the main Martin House stood vacant. It suffered just extensive damage from vandalism and weather. And then in 1954, a private individual purchased it um, from the city and um, for use as his home and architecture studio, in essence, saving it from further neglect and, and even possible demolition, although he did have to make some, you know, some changes to put a studio in and stuff. And in 1960, he was forced to sell the pergola, the conservatory, and the carriage house to raise funds to save the main house. And those structures were subsequently demolished to make way for an apartment building. And then in 1967, the University of Buffalo purchased the Martin House as a resident uh, residents for their incoming president, who was Martin Meyerson, who was a distinguished city planner, so they thought that was appropriate. And they hired uh, Wright apprentice Edward Taffel to hire uh, to renovate and convert it back into a single-family residence. And then after Meyerson left in 1971, UB used it for um, meeting and entertainment space for the foundation, university archives, you know, all kinds of different things. Um, and then in 1975, um, the building, thanks to some local activists and some other folks who really understood how important it was, got it listed on the National Register of Historic Places. And then in 1986, they got it declared a National Historic Landmark, which, as you know, is the highest designation in America. Oh, yes. So that really mm-hmm. helped people start to, you know, really pay attention and sort of coalesce around the house. So then, as you say, in 1992, 
um, the Martin House Restoration Corporation was legally created, and it was a really unique public-private partnership. So it created the nonprofit organization, which is where I work, and we, you know, do the day-to-day care for um, the building and grounds. We run the education programs. We, you know, make sure that the site is accessible to the public. Um, but the University of Buffalo, which in 1992 still owned it, um, agreed to donate the house to the corporation um, and provide technical assistance and also funding assistance. And then New York State stepped to the plate as well through their Office of Parks, Recreation, and Historic Preservation, and they have provided really significant funding. Um, they provide to us even today um, ongoing um, capital support and technical assistance, especially with the, um, with the collection. Um, and so uh, it really is a very unique public-private partnership that we've been able to put together here, which I think is one of the reasons the restoration is as sort of meticulous and technically um, extraordinary as as it is. Um, so the Martin House Restoration Corporation sort of started with a very simple mission, just raise the money to restore the main house and operate it as a historic house museum. But of course, <laughs> over time, um, it expanded to include the rebuilding of the Lost Pergola Conservatory and Carriage House. We've acquired the what were then the privately owned Barton House and Gardener's Cottage. Um, finally, we built the new visitor center, the Great Batch Pavilion, which was designed by Toshiko Mori, who's just an incredibly important architect in her own right. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's allowed us to really provide greater interpretation and guest, you know, guest services opportunities for those visiting the site. So it's a really, you know, it's a really great space to come and visit. So okay. I know what this number is, but for our listeners, how much money has this is an impressive number. This is how this is what happens when people in a community really have pride in that community and pride in, in, in preserving the history in that community. How much money has been raised to restore Morton House and the grounds? So so far about fifty eight million dollars has been invested in restoring the, the complete estate. Wow. And, and I, I must say, you guys have done a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful job. Okay. Now, Martin House Thank was one you. of two residents Frank Lloyd Wright created for the Martin family. Two residents. The other, Greycliff, which isn't that far away, right? No, it's about a 20-minute drive. 20 minute it's drive. beautiful mm-hmm. on the shores of Lake Erie. Yep. It was their summer residence built between 1926 and 31. Is still situated on a cliff high atop the shores of Lake Erie. Gorgeous, gorgeous spot. Like Martin House, wasn't Great Cliff also restored thanks to ground groundswells of support and money? Yes. <laughs> well, you always need that second factor, don't you? Oh, you need um, it. Yeah, so <laughs> um, Great Cliff had also become privately owned. and um, But, yeah, uh, thanks to, again, that groundswell of public support of people really understanding the importance of this space, it is also now, for all intents and purposes, fully restored and it has they've been working on that for about 20 years and it's a it's also a really beautiful project yeah it's gorgeous absolutely gorgeous um there are two websites gray cliff and you're associated with gray cliff although martin house and gray cliff aren't one of the same right two different organizations correct right two different organizations run the visitor experience but we do work together quite a bit and um, in the summer, you'll see we do some tours that um, encompass both sites. It's a great way, and those those opportunities will come up on both of our, our websites as it gets closer to the summer season. But it's a great way to see, you know, it was one family, one architect, two houses, and it's, it's a really great way to see both those spaces together. Absolutely. I mean, that, that makes for a great trip to Buffalo from anybody from it the sure East Coast does. or wherever, Canada, wherever. Can you describe Great Cliff today and how much funding has been raised for the restoration of the house, related structures and the landscaping? This is an eight and a half acre plot. Yeah, so today, as we said, it is fully restored, the house, and it's open to the public year-round. So you don't just have to come in the summer. It's actually, it's really beautiful to see the lake in the winter, too, and it, and it is open year-round. Um, there's a guided tour program there as well. And the total investment in Greycliff has been about $10 million um, since the Greycliff Conservancy was formed and acquired the property in the late 1990s. Um, one of the interesting things about Greycliff is their garden was originally designed by the celebrated landscape architect Ellen Biddle Shipman. And right now they are currently undergoing efforts to restore that original garden design. And they're also, um, thanks to some really generous support from New York State, building a visitor center there as well. So it is also another great Frank Lloyd Wright restoration project here in Buffalo. Martin House and Greycliff both have um, like a whole string of honors and designations 
organizations. Can you name some of them for us? Gray Cliff is a New York State landmark, and it's also listed on the National Register of Historic Places. Martin House is designated a National Historic Landmark, which is the highest designation that the U.S. offers historic sites. It's also, interestingly, I think, it's officially designated a New York State Historic Site, and it's the first 20th century architectural representation among the state's 36 official historic sites. Honestly, the Martin House Restoration has won so many awards, um, it would be hard to name them all. But, you know, we've won awards for the restoration from the National Trust for Historic Preservation. Um, we've uh, won awards from the AIA, the American Institute of Architects, and the Great Batch Pavilion, our new building, actually won a Daniel B. Niederlander Award from our Buffalo History Museum, um, which I think is interesting. So it would bore your audience if I listed all the awards. But needless to say, you know, it. It is a celebration of not just history, but also of the sort of restoration crafts that it takes to take care of a building like this. And it's been it's been great to see, um, you know, to see those things awarded because, you know, it's one thing to design a building, but then folks had to actually build this building 120 years ago, and now today we have to continue to care for the building. And so those preservation trades and crafts are so critical to everything we do every day. And I would say, and you do an absolutely fantastic job. I would remind all of our listeners too, as this will be the uh, the last actually a spectacular interpretation of the coolest neighborhoods in America on YouTube as well. So we've got we got a lot of really fine pictures, photography, and some aerials too on specifically the Martin House. So look for the YouTube to come out probably uh, a day or two after. The podcast hits the street. You guys have supplied us with some outstanding photography. It really. Martin House and Great Cliff both have, um, how many visitors do they get, both of them, a year? So it's an odd time to ask that question only because of the pandemic. Um, yeah, but last true. year, um, last year, twenty um, in uh, 2022, um, Great Cliff Great Cliff had about 16,000 visitors, which includes tours and the other types of programming that they do. And um, likewise, here um, at the Martin House in 2022, we had over 30,000 um, visitors, which again includes our formal tour program as well as, you know, the other, we have a summer camp and you know, we do all kinds of other programming as well. So we had um, just over 30,000 visitors in 2022. But I think you could probably expect a lot more this year because people are out, they're mobile, they want to get out, they want to get around, they want a vacation. So I, I would imagine you're looking at a bigger influx this year, right? I hope so. Um, we're really excited to welcome people. And now that the Canadian border is a little bit more open that um, we, you know, we love our Canadian neighbors and um, we love it when they come to visit us too. So we expect um, now that it's a little bit easier to travel between the two countries again, but we'll hopefully get some more visitors as well. Yeah, it's probably easier for people in certain parts of Canada to get there than it is for people like on the East Coast, right? Of, of the U.S. It, it, it's very, um, we we've definitely have gotten used to, I think COVID was hard for folks because we've all, we're all very used to having a strong relationship with our, our neighbors to the north, so it'll be nice to welcome them back again. There is an outdoor market which I found fascinating because you really make use of the property held annually at Greycliff. Can you describe that, and is the timing of the market a good time to go visit both homes? Yes, it's an excellent time. Um, the gardens in both homes are really in full bloom over the summer. So, um, yeah, the uh, market at uh, Greycliff, um, which is expanding this summer to nine Thursday evenings, so it'll run July 20th to September 14th, mm -hmm. um, and that is some of the most beautiful weather along Lake Erie, and um, it's a really excellent opportunity to have sort of more casual interaction with the historic site. Of course, you can do tours, but, um, you know, you can just be a little bit more casual. There's vendors, there's food, there's music, there's activities, um, and then, like I said, there are, you can still take a tour, um, and guided tours of both spaces, especially if you're a first-time visitor, we really recommend there's just the stories, and we've only scratched the surface here today, um, you know, the stories that you get, the understanding of um, the architecture of the people who built these homes um, is really, it's really rich and really worth, um, really worth doing, um, and then, yeah, if you can do both uh, both houses on one day, you really get a sense of, of who Frank Lloyd Wright was as a designer and how he interacted with this family who really did become one of his major patrons. Um, and so. there's always volunteers on site on both houses to answer any other questions that you have as well. In addition to all the tours and events offered 
for adults throughout the year. You also have programming for students, don't you? Can you tell us about those programs? Yeah, sure. We love welcoming that sort of next generation of, of design designers to our, our space um, and hopefully inspiring them. So um, we have a lot of different programs for learners of all ages. Um, one of the ones we really love is called our Junior Docent Program. And this is an educational opportunity that allows kids to learn about the Martin House and then, in their own words, give a tour to parents, teachers, and administrators. So it's multi-tiered. It often starts with a tour. We do multiple sessions at their school, and then they actually get a reception um, where their friends and family are invited here to the Martin House to watch them put on a tour. They put in a ton of work um, learning the architecture, the art, the history of the house, um, and their knowledge and understanding at the end of it is just incredible. Um, for our younger learners, we do an architecture adventures program. It's really our signature preschool program, and we offer it free once a month all summer long. And um, programs really center around understanding nature, its connection to art and architecture. And um, almost every program consists of a learning activity, a nature walk, a scavenger hunt. Um, there's an art project. Um, in the past, children have made bee houses. Um, they learn how animals create architecture for themselves. Hmm. They've made bug art. They paint nature scenes at the Martin House Gardens as a subject. So it's a really incredible way to get kids interacting um, interacting with the site and thinking about maybe their own role in design. So it's an educational experience for every member of the family. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So in the last few minutes we have here, describe too, and I found this fascinating, the travel experiences curated by Martin House. Yeah, so in addition to... Um, you know, what you can do here in Buffalo, we also wanted folks to be able to understand that wider um, context that Frank Lloyd Wright is working in. So we offer one or two educational travel trips every year, and these trips um, explore architecture that is centered on Frank Lloyd Wright and his contemporaries, and also take into consideration wherever we're going, that sort of larger geographic region, its influence on the local culture, um, which would have influenced Frank Lloyd Wright. We eat local food. We seek out interesting art and architecture. Um, we try to stay in really unique hotels if possible. Um, so these trips really allow participants to learn more about the long and colorful career of Frank Lloyd Wright, um, while also creating an experience through the lens of art and architecture of that city itself. So we've taken folks to Phoenix, Los Angeles, Chicago, New York City, Charleston, and more. And coming up in about a month, we'll be um, in Florida. Uh, so uh, and then I think we'll have a second travel trip this fall. So folks are interested in that. They can always check out our website and see what's coming up. But it's a great way to get out, um, you know, into other spaces and see what Frank Lloyd Wright was designing for other communities. Yeah, it's amazing. When you stop and think about it, back in, you know, he this was quite some time ago, just getting around. He he, he did things all over, over the, the country, country. Yep. all over the country. We've got a couple near us in Philadelphia. Best Shalom Synagogue is one of them. Listen, this has been magnificent. How do people find out more? What's your website? It is martinhouse.org. So M-A-R-T-I-N-H-O-U-S-E.org. And there's so much great information on there um, about uh, where to shop, <laughs> how to visit, you know, where, even just down to the individual. We get a lot of questions about the individual planting scheme. Even, you know, every uh, plant in the garden is listed there, as well as there are some great virtual tours that could get people, you know, excited and, and wanting to learn more. Um, and then we always encourage everyone to come out and visit us. And then you can find information about Greycliff on our website, or you can go to their site, which is also at franklloydwrightgraycliff.org. Okay. FLWgraycliff.org. Well, this has been magnificent. Very, very, very astute understanding of, of Frank Lloyd Wright and, and, and the ability to communicate it exquisitely. So we really appreciate you. We appreciate your, uh, your expertise, your time. Thank you very, very much. And congratulations again on becoming the new executive director. Thanks, and I hope to see you and your listeners here on site very, very soon. Hey, Kev, great news on how our listeners can tap into their home equity without taking a loan, making monthly payments, or piling on debt. With Unison, they get up to 17.5% of their home's value to remodel, pay off debt, buy a vacation home, whatever. You have Unison, right? Yep, paid off medical debt. Unison's terms were perfect for me, especially zero monthly payments for up to 30 years. Zero monthly payments? How do they make money? When you sell your home, you pay them the original co-investment amount plus a percentage of the change in your home's value 
up to 30 years later. How do we learn more? Go to unison.com backslash YVH, which stands for Your Valuable Home. Again, that's unison.com backslash YVH. Additional terms and conditions apply. Visit unison.com backslash YVH for details. Remember the name Provia, your single source for professional class, entry doors, storm doors, patio doors, vinyl and wood-clad vinyl windows, vinyl siding, manufactured stone and metal roofing, products made with latest technology and honest old-world craftsmanship. The Provia way. That's this week's podcast. Your Valuable Home comes to you every week on the new Pod City Podcast Network, Apple Podcasts, and all other popular podcast directories. If you want us to share your home improvement project or horror story, email me at kevin at yourvaluablehome.net. That's kevin at yourvaluablehome.net. And don't forget to tell your friends and family about Your Valuable Home, the weekly podcast that's all about building wealth in residential real estate and hiring the right contractor to do the right job at the right price. 